0: Greetings, you are listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Pace, and I am the Loomis who has finally gone completely bananas (laughs) in
1: this episode. Oh my goodness gracious. And I'm Joe, and I am your GOP representative of Haddonfield, Illinois.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now that's scary <laughs> Ooh. so before we get into the movie we're going to be talking about halloween five today but do we have any announcements and just checking in also with how you're doing joe
1: i'm doing i'm doing great uh as we record this we have a finished easter weekend and that was a very contemplative weekend for me I have nothing else to report except that I feel spiritually fulfilled as well as ready to watch an endless stream of horror movies. <laughs> right? Our one of
0: our episodes actually dropped on Easter and I'm like that's kind of perfect for Easter. My idea of Easter afternoon after church is to just watch a horror movie and enjoy it. I'm not I'm sure that's not everybody's way they celebrate easter but it certainly
1: is mine. this is why we're kindred spirits i i agree with you 100 <laughs> percent
0: uh the only announcement i have is that we uh, our next film is going to be halloween six and we had previously talked about splitting up that into two episodes and i think we are going to continue with that which means halloween our next film is going to be halloween six the pre- theatrical cut our next one is the theatrical cut Mm. and then after that we will revisit it and watch the producers cut um and then after that we'll be h2o and continue continuing on from there so a lot of fun stuff to look forward to i think
1: oh i'm definitely looking forward to it but hey pace how are you doing i'm
0: okay it's been it's been pretty busy week for me and april is just going to be a really busy month i am a grad student a doctoral student, so it's getting close to the end of the semester. I have some writing goals for my dissertation I really need to meet. I have some hmm. writing job. I also work as uh, doing writing and research for an education company, so I have a lot of goals for that and deadlines for that. So just a lot going on
1: all at once. But aside uh, from that, it's good. Wow, sending good, sending you uh, good energies and 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 prayers to do all that. Yep. One of the
0: things keeping me fairly level, though, is this podcast. Recording it every week is really fun it's and great. watching horror Amen. movies with my friends. So, Amen. So thank you, listeners, for indulging us with uh, giving us this time for fun and uh, talking about some fun movies, I think. Thank you so much, y'all. Yay, we love our listeners. This is also our first episode we're recording after we have officially – no, this is our second episode of recording after we've officially launched. So that's really cool too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Seeing a lot of positive response on social media. So please, of course, feel free to comment, like subscribe, all those things on social media, follow us there and with us. We love interacting with all of you. I am having love.
1: Yeah. Go please. I am having so much fun interacting on social media. I have actually also discovered uh, a lot of other horror fans who are following us so it's it's great to see how how much more expansive our community is becoming just because you and me decided one day to do church meets horror movies
0: (laughs) right it's really cool it's something that i think like we kind of talked about before uh that not many people would put together but even so i think that it works really well so Mm -hmm. cool so moving on to our film then i guess uh we have halloween five allegedly titled the revenge of michael myers that's what it says on my blu-ray and that's what it says when you look it up on amazon or wikipedia however if you notice the title card only says halloween five it does not say revenge of michael myers (laughs) in the film itself and apparently it was also going to originally be called halloween five and things that go bump in the night which i kind of like that title Because Revenge of Michael Myers makes no sense since who is he taking revenge on that? Loomis maybe? I don't know. The the title of the film is just the tip of the iceberg for things that are confusing (laughs) about this movie. (laughs) It came out in 1989, directed by a Swiss director, Dominique Athenin gerard I believe is how you would say that. He was known at the time for directing After Darkness and that um, film caught Uh, Deborah Hill's eye, and so she uh, approached Mustafa Akkad and suggested Dominique to direct the next film, and he liked it, and so they brought on
1: Dominique. Hmm. Did did you see After Darkness? I have not seen it. This is my first time hearing about this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I want to, I definitely want to look at it because there are things I like about this movie, to be honest, as a horror movie. I'm not sure I like it as a Halloween movie. And so I wonder if After Darkness, which is also kind of horror genre, is, is better because it's not kind of constrained by being part of the series.
1: Mm, interesting and enticing point.
0: Uh yeah, yeah. And then it was written by Shem Bertman, who did a first pass. Uh it was not liked <laughs> by oh. Akkad or by Dominique. So then uh Michael Jacobs, I believe. Did a second pass. And then Dominique uh, then and Gerard did a final pass. And apparently the movie was originally rated X. Wow. And they had to do a lot of editing down. Which I think is also part of why the movie makes no sense. Uh, because a lot of scenes had to be cut down or completely uh, taken out. And so I, uh, there's rumors that they found some of the film reels. Perhaps with the original opening, of the film, and some of the other scenes. So I really hope they can do a director's cut this movie because I think it might make it better because it's yeah. not great now. Yeah, I definitely think some of the expanded footage might help this movie.
1: What was it? Was the footage gory? Was that why it was rated X originally?
0: Yeah, it was apparently very gory. There was some stuff. Uh, this was late '80s, so there is also keep in mind. Uh, it's in the middle of the Reagan's second term or towards the end of his second term in office. And there's just kind of this uh. atmosphere of, I think, kind of this family values and this reactionary stuff to the satanic panic that happened in the mid-80s that the MPA got a little bit stricter, I think, about gore. And so, like, there's a scene, for instance, that was cut out um, at the end of the film with Jamie in the garbage chute where her leg gets cut by Michael. And so we don't see her leg get cut, but then later on in the film we see her leg is bleeding, so they just cut out that scene.
1: Right.
0: But getting getting her leg cut is, does not seem to me to be that gory, but because it's a violence against a child and stuff like that, they thought it should be cut out, so it's cut out. Another scene that was cut out was the... SWAT team responding to a distress call at the children's hospital that Jamie um, visited so uh, that Jamie was living at so uh, there's this whole sequence apparently where Michael basically goes through the entire SWAT team killing them and all that's left in the movie is some bad overdubbing of lines about trying to explain why the police are no longer watching (laughs) the Myers house. And then we see bodies getting wheeled out of the children's hospital and that's it. So it's like, it makes no sense as it stands, but apparently there's a much, uh, extended sequence there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely tell that there were some, some things that were sort of out of sequence. And if you weren't thinking too hard about editing and behind the scenes, goings on you would just think huh that seems a little off yep
0: i agree uh what are your first experiences or memories of this film have you seen this before
1: this watch through or no i remember watching it as part of the same vhs collection that a friend in high school lent me of these how do we how do we refer to them middle series halloween movies yeah kind of
0: thorn trilogy as it's called sometimes
1: Yes, yes. And so I remember watching it uh, <clears throat> on on that cassette. And <clears throat> I have to say I I didn't take any lasting memories from it when I was a teenager. I think I think my reaction to Halloween vibe was the same as yours. Kind of a disappointment that it wasn't better than I hoped it would be and I remember when I was I I very definitely remember when I first watched when I was first watching it that at some point in the movie I I kind of walked away and let it keep <laughs> playing in the background as like background noise. So that that should tell you something about this movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of my feelings about it too. The very first time I watched it was in my mid 20s when I was doing like a marathon of all the Halloween movies and I got to this movie or maybe it was Halloween six and I just remember like I gave up. I was like, I can't watch any more oh, no. of these. They are, they're not very good yeah. uh, and have fallen so far from the first two, which I think were pretty great horror movies. for sure. So, so yeah, I don't ha- have very fond memories of this one. I think this one is also kind of universally uh, disliked by men, by most fans of oh. the franchise, because it's really an odd ch- it's an odd one. It Halloween 4, you know, we get the return of Michael Myers and so there's a lot of nostalgia about that film even though right. you and I didn't love it. We still liked it mm-hmm. enough, but then this one is just a complete left turn and so I feel like a lot of fans were just confused by it. Yeah. For sure. So what about I guess time to walk through the film with our thoughts. What about the
1: opening of the film? <laughs> So for me, for me, this this mediocre middle series so far for me anyway. It always starts out promising with an interesting intro. It's like, you know, the expression never judge a book by its cover. I think it really rings true for these particular Halloween movies because I have been judging these movies by their cover or their <laughs> opening sequence and and my judgment is always, oh, I'm excited because it's so promising. I I really I really should learn not to do that anymore with Halloween and possibly also with the men that I date, but that is another podcast entirely. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean yes. <laughs> we could
0: we could like do a spin off of mini sodes about our dating rose <laughs> one day, because this would be horrific. <laughs> yes. I I have to agree with you, though. The beginning of this, the opening credits are pretty cool. It's yeah. nice slashes with really exaggerated sound yeah. effects. And then we find out at the very end that the knife being slashed is carving out a jack-o'-lantern. So I like that it's going back to the ja- jack-o'-lantern film, right. uh, theme of the first three movies. Uh, it's kind of a surprising opening we bring in the Michael My- the Halloween theme too. Of course, back to John Carpenter. So that's pretty cool.
1: I'm I'm, one, I'm one, Oh, I'm sorry. I keep laughing, but I'm just wondering that about how if in this point of the series, there's just so much, so much that's problematic about the story and the script that uh, the the creative folks are just more invested in. All of these creative ways to do the jack o' lantern sequence because it's so it's as iconic of the Halloween movies as Michael Myers is.
0: It is really, I think, like it's one of the things that just really sets a series apart. And none of the other franch- the big three, we don't with Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street, we don't get those like iconic repeat openings like we do with this. So.
1: Right? Yeah, you're correct.
0: Oh, then uh, we get a nice little recap of Halloween Four. So we basically rewatch the end of Halloween Four. <laughs> they replace the bullet sound, so it's not as quite like Hollywood Western <laughs> sound effects <laughs> I
1: know- anymore. I, know- I noticed that immediately, and I couldn't stop laughing. By the way, red flag when you're watching a horror movie and you're laughing in the beginning—big red flag. Right.
0: <laughs> and then we get they but we get this little added sequence now where they decide to toss in explosives into the mine shaft after Michael Myers, but we see him like crawling through the mine shaft and then falling into a river. Yeah. Just like floating along the river mm-hmm. before he gets he comes across A random shack in the woods alongside the river crawls in, is about to murder the guy but passes out and I guess is unconscious for a year and the guy nurses him back to health over
1: the year I don't understand exactly what's supposed to happen That was all implied, was it not? And also, I I did some digging and that sequence was supposed to have a whole different setup, right?
0: Yeah, and it was actually filmed. So, this is one of the things that is believed to have been discovered on one of the uh, reels that I mentioned earlier. Because it's just, I think that might make a little bit more sense, especially with the direction Halloween 6 goes. The original sequence was supposed to have like some sort of cult person who tattoos Michael with the Mark of Thorn. So, instead of yes. being implied that. Michael apparently has always had it. We're just now noticing it five entries in for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, it, apparently he gets tattooed with the mark of Thorn and then is somehow resurrected or something like that. So, yeah. so I think that would have been a better opening, to be honest.
1: Yeah, there. From what I had read of that original opening, it was definitely more occult of a take. Uh, And it sort of harkens to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which, as we know, is disconnected from the Michael Myers narrative. But the heavy occult theme of Season of the Witch was supposed to be echoed in the original version of this random shaft opening in (laughs) Halloween 5. But then, not knowing that, and I, I guess I, I'm I'm the surrogate here for the general audience because I'm not uh, as deeply knowledgeable about the franchise as you are. <clears throat> as as uh, as the surrogate of for the audience, the what ends up being in the theatrical release is just some weird old guy with a parrot <laughs> in some random shack, right. and it's like okay, yeah, and. It's
0: just it's so out of place, and then, and we're really left wondering like what has this guy, what have Michael and this dude been doing in the shack for a year? Like, I I kind of want to see that movie. Like, are they? Is it like a um? I, I could almost see this being like a sitcom, you know, between <laughs> like a the- buddy cop thing. <laughs> oh, maybe I don't know what's going. Speaking of buddy cops, we we're, we'll talk about the two buddy cops in this oh, movie right. which oh my god
1: and that, another yeah, random thing about the movie
0: <laughs> I, I would love to see just just kind of like this fish out of water michael myers is the new kid in school being adopted by this oh, no. by this uh out in the woods character i don't know it
1: <laughs> oh man i i <laughs> I was thinking more of along the lines of did they have a Jesus and the beloved disciple thing going on where it would just be a mystery for all time, but there was definitely something homosexual going
0: on. Yeah, there that would be amazing. I because like what else would they be doing living together, cohabitating in that tiny shack for a year? There has to be a little bit of like a, Rom- uh, romance
1: or something going on right <laughs> there has to be it, yeah there, there has to be but you know all of that being said and the just the random randomness of michael myers ending up here just as a standalone scene i think it worked weirdly i mean it made no it, the context was not great or clear at all uh, but I I, I liked it. Again, acting as a surrogate of the audience.
0: And then we can't forget about Jamie, who is now in some sort of children's clinic, Mm. because Haddonfield is large enough to have a... Uh, Apparently. ...dedicated children's clinic, and she is unable to speak, weirdly, uh, perhaps because of the trauma, which I I guess is a real reaction to trauma. I'm not sure... Mm. Especially childhood trauma. I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. But then she's having this dream about Michael being rescued by the guy in the woods. And then she has a dream where Michael is now resurrected on the eve of Halloween once again. And murders the guy in the woods. Which I guess is what actually happened. And then she starts to go into a a seizure of some sort. And the nurse comes in. And the nurse is like... Just the most over the top, hamming it up actors. It's just another one of your nightmares. Yes. Like so melodramatic. And then she gets into some sort of like fugue state. And then Loomis comes in. And this is where we see Loomis has finally gone completely. Absolutely. Oh, I was. I don't know what's going on with his character. I was so (laughs) disappointed in his behavior. Because, yeah, like, he's become so obsessed with Michael Myers, I guess, that he's willing to put Jamie in jeopardy many times in this film. This is one of them where she's having a seizure and the doctor is saying he needs to do some sort of operation to save her life. And Loomis is like, don't do it. We need to wait. And Loomis turns out to be right that the seizure stops because it's some sort of psychic link with Michael, I guess, causing this. But
1: still it's like what a dick thing to say loomis absolutely like, you're... yeah 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 i i agree also i really i really like the phrasing you just uh, used uh, jamie in jeopardy so in my imagination which as we all know is very vivid these this this thorn trilogy thing in light of the halloween 2018 remake and how that's bypassing uh, all of these movies in my vivid imagination the thorn trilogy would be extracted as their own entity right and we could call Mm -hmm. them jamie in jeopardy a halloween (laughs) story you know like like the like disney does for star wars
0: (laughs) yeah i love that we would have the jamie in jeopardy saga but the question is is it Jamie character in Jeopardy or Jamie Lee Curtis in Jeopardy, the actress, because you mm-hmm. could conceivably call the rest of the Halloweens Jamie Lee Curtis in Jeopardy. True. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, Rachel's back. That's exciting about this movie. Rachel
1: is back. So the movie actually opens with uh, a scene from the previous movie. Correct. They're, they're, they're driving yep. in the truck and Rachel is driving. Oh yeah yeah. So that's that's reused footage if I'm correct. So mm-hmm. but my first thought was oh they got the actress to play Rachel back and I thought it was going to be a temporary thing since this franchise is has a weird reputation for asking people to come back for for the randomest things.
0: Yeah. And as we see we kind of <sighs> One of the big complaints about this film is that it does Rachel dirty. And yes. And I have to agree with this because we get... And even the actress who played Rachel has said in interviews that she was disappointed. Yeah. That she, that she was invited to come back and she ends up being killed in the first act of the film. I read an interview with the director where the director said that he did this on purpose to mm. really heighten the suspense for the audience and really kind of take the audience on an unexpected roller coaster because we would all expect Jamie to make it till toward the end, but he
1: was thinking more along the psycho lines. <laughs> what I what what I was really hoping for Rachel before her extremely untimely demise <laughs> Was that she would become sort of the Heather Langenkamp of this series because she she has the looks and 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 the vibe and that is a horror movie trend of this decade that would have been great to latch on to. But I I the, the explanation that you provided that the director explained I think I think that's really thin. I no I yeah. I, I don't accept it,
0: <laughs> especially because Tina. be uh, tina who is kind of the exact opposite of rachel she is more loud and rambunctious she has brunette hair whereas rachel is blonde and is kind of they're kind of intentionally foils i think for each other yeah tina kind of takes on the sisterly role to jamie but it almost seems unearned because we get tina and rachel introduced to jamie at the hospital they both come to visit jamie And it's just, we're supposed to believe that they have this really close bond, Tina and Jamie, even though we've never seen Tina before. And this movie takes place one year later. So, Which isn't to say it's impossible. It's just like we get so little of their relationship before Rachel is killed that then we're supposed to, as the audience, just believe and go along with the fact that Tina and Jamie are best friends uh, going forward. So
1: Tina was the one who brought brought the dog in or or smuggled the dog in right yeah so it it already looks like they're setting us up to become comfortable with uh tina and jamie and it it already looks like rachel is already starting to become pushed out of the picture and uh and another observation is once i saw that dog I was like, oh no. Because we know how precarious dogs can be in these Halloween movies.
0: <laughs> yes, this one is a rare dog death. I do not think we see on screen, but we do know the dog dies because he's up in the attic with everybody else at the end of the movie. I yeah, think, yeah. If I remember correctly, but
1: yeah, so it's it's weird. It seems like they're already setting us up for Rachel to take a back seat, if not her untimely demise.
0: Yeah, and that becomes one of the early drama or early like sequences in the film is the we find out right away that the family Jamie's adopted family if you remember from previous films Jamie uh, Jamie is apparently Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis the actress's uh daughter. Oh, mm-hmm. And Laurie Strode and her husband died at some point before Halloween 4 and so they were ad- so their daughter was adopted Jamie by this new family and Rachel is her foster sister mm-hmm. and so we find out that on the anniversary of last year's film events where Rachel and Jamie were stalked by Michael Myers and narrowly escaped and then Jamie in some sort of fugue state, stabbed her mom right right or her foster mom yes so on the anniversary of this trauma trauma the family decides to pack up and go out of town which i think is a realistic thing you just want to kind of sure. change the scenery on the anniversary but for some reason they decide to leave poor jamie there at the clinic alone and just abandon her it, 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 and so Mm-hmm. Rachel is supposed to go along with the family, but she's debating whether or not she wants to go with her parents or end up just kind of having the house to herself for the weekend. Um, and so she ends up getting staying at the house alone for the weekend. Jamie has a vision of Michael killing her. She calls loomis who calls the cops they go to see rachel rachel is alive the cops leave and then rachel gets killed with a pair of scissors by michael
1: and i i was not expecting this I, i i was expecting her to be stalked by michael but that just came as the worst kind of surprise a needless death in my opinion and 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 going back to this notion of the family or the parents going out of town but inexplicably leaving Jamie behind. To me, that's another in the tradition of this, uh, in the unfortunate tradition of this director's series of flimsy excuses, because if we're, if it were a matter of just simply not wanting to uh, cast the same actors or even recast new actors in the role of the parents, then they, I think a stronger reason uh, should have been concocted. But at the same time, the actor, the actress who played the mom came back briefly so they could film her sloshing around in the bathtub, right?
0: I don't know if it was. This is something that I am curious to find out. And so maybe our listeners will know better. I don't think that's the mom. I think it's somebody who they kind of shot from behind with a wig on or somebody who they got to resemble the mom and then they did a voiceover from a different actress who's supposed to sound like the mom i don't think they actually brought the actress back because there's also a voiceover on the phone when jamie calls her mom and her mom is basically saying we'll see you after the weekend i love you or something like that we just hear that little bit but. It's clear. It's clearly dubbed over by the same person yes. who did the voice in the beginning of the film. I'm not sure it's the original actress. In fact, I don't think it is.
1: You know what? I have to say that as, as we uh, dive more and more into this movie, it seems like there's a lot of jerry rigging. There's a lot of uh, patching that's going <laughs> on. It's just like yep. it's like a ship that's still sailing, but there's a bunch of masking tapes stuck to the hull. Yep. And this is
0: also where we get introduced to the buddy cop comedy (laughs) that randomly is in this. When they go to check on um, Rachel, we see these two incompetent police officers, absolutely incompetent. And every time they show them walking or talking, there's this weird like circus soundtrack of like honking clown noses or something going on in the background. It is so weird and so out
1: of place in this movie. It is It is such an abrupt tone shift you're like what did i come here for this if you weren't in the know about the behind the scenes stuff you would have never known the whole reason why those two cops exist i had to look it up in the wikipedia i don't know if he knew this pace but they're supposed to be an homage to a west craven movie called the last yeah, house, right, on the house on the left, left. left which i never saw so did you understand the connection?
0: I didn't. I have not seen the Wes Craven version in many, many years. Mm. So when I saw that, and or maybe perhaps it was when you told you told me this when we were watching it the first time, I just, I, I don't have an immediate connection to what he was homaging to in that film. I have seen the remake more recently, and I don't think the remake has uh, those characters at all. Oh, I see. But uh, we also get Loomis going to the police station. So speaking of cops, and he goes to the sheriff whose daughter died in the last film. He says, have you forgotten your own daughter? <laughs> Loomis being nice and cold and dramatic like usual. <laughs> and then he has this weird line where he's trying to convince the sheriff that Michael Myers is still alive. But everyone thinks Michael Myers is dead because they threw in the... Um, Dynamite, I guess, into the mine shaft yeah. after they shot him, but they never found a body. So, but whatever, he's somehow not alive. But so he's, he's trying to convince the sheriff they're still alive. And Loomis is like, 12 years ago, I set him on fire and I prayed that he would burn in hell. But in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him.
1: It's <laughs> like, oh my god, it well. You know, I liked it, being a fan of daytime soap operas. You hear this kind of dialogue all the time. And by the way, Pay. side note, p- props to you for a great Loomis impersonation. If there were ever an audiobook novelization oh of Halloween 5, you should be the Loomis for this. <laughs> I
0: cannot do a Donald Cousins at all. It's just so melodramatic, it though. That it's like It's very easy to at least feigned melodrama it's
1: it's yeah i just you have to wonder what has been happening to dr loomis off screen he just really shows up as a a completely unhinged person
0: yeah like his obsession has taken him to the point of madness which is a trope in films and i'm not talking about like actual mental health crises and stuff but more the trope that we see in literature and stuff this kind of obsessive madness that comes kind of you i I think especially of like moby dick when we think of uh captain ahab and that just having this obsessive madness to get the whale and that i think that's kind of how they're modeling loomis's character here he's always kind of teetered on that brink but this one he's like well over he is he is fully off the wagon my goodness gracious. Uh, then also we get something that the audience has been wondering all along. We get Tina talking to her friend. Uh, so this is after Rachel died. No one knows Rachel is dead. And so we see Tina talking to her friend. And she says, they should ban Halloween in this town. It's like, I think we're all thinking that. I, <laughs> right? As the audience. Like, why do they keep having Halloween if every year there's a murder?
1: Yes. <laughs> I, you know, that that is... That is the obvious question. Who knows?
0: Hmm. And then I think we are now up to the children's hospital chase scene, uh, which is pretty effective. So basically what happens is Jamie is, sees somebody outside. She believes it to be Michael, yeah, her uncle, and it's not. It, it turns out that the person is a janitor following her through, but we get that killer's perspective following her through. Right. There's some scary sequences. She ends up in like the furnace or boiler room of the children's hospital, and then we find out it's a janitor who just is wearing similar get up to right. like a jumpsuit kind of thing. And then, of course, we get the return of the nurse who's like, "Jamie, what? I was looking I, for you." What?
1: It it just seems so random. Like, how did? How did she end up in that part of the children's hospital? Was she also uh, looking for Jamie at the same time? Jamie was running away from uh, what she perceived as Michael Ma. It just just seems so disjointed. It's like this nurse just pops up Mm -hmm. out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, so she must have been following the janitor who is following yeah. Jamie.
1: I don't know. I don't know. A uh, s- quick side note though about Jamie. So, you know, these psychic visions uh and if you can clarify Jamie's psychic connection I guess to Michael. I guess that was uh established in Halloween 4 when she briefly brushed her hand over his. Was it was,
0: was Yeah, was that- even before that though cuz remember she's in in Halloween 4 she's in the convenience store going shopping, she picks the crown uniform and then he has this, we're not sure if it's, I think in that movie, in our commentary, we actually were like, was that a vision where she saw Michael there or was Michael actually there? Like the film isn't clear. It's kind of ambiguous, but I think there is some kind of psychic thing there that must've been, that must've gotten stronger after
1: she brushed his hand. Well, you know, and I, (laughs) I, I'm laughing because I can't believe I'm saying this. I don't mind the psychic thing. <laughs> I, think, <clears throat> I think it's cool given the context of a movie. The movie adds a layer of, ooh, you know what I mean? Uh, but if I'm trying to think of it in a logical sequence, which really I shouldn't be doing for Halloween, <laughs> uh, it's why didn't Laurie have a psychic connection? In Halloween 1, clearly this was all an unwelcome surprise. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but then there's that weird dream she has in Halloween too. If you remember where the mom, where she sees somebody who she who's saying, "I'm not your mom, to Lori." Right. It's not the same level of psychic connection. It's I guess it's more repressed memories or something. But there's something weird going on there too.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I like I like uh, uh, the idea of the repressed memories because honestly, we really we really have to stretch for. For for reasons here, you know, as we say on social media, make it make sense. Yep, right. Uh,
0: and then Loomis also finds Jamie shortly after and he starts accosting her and is basically saying <sighs> that he knows where he knows that she knows that Michael is still alive and Jamie is hiding this fact from him. Why won't Jamie just communicate and say where Michael is? Why is she protecting him? And Jamie is, like, unable to speak, as has been established. But then he says, Loomis says, what about your stepmother? He made you stab her. So, two things here. First of all, (laughs) that was how they retconned the end of the first film, which is clearly a setup for Jamie to be the killer in this movie. And, in fact, some of the early drafts had Jamie and Michael kind of team up to be killers. That would have been awesome. Right? I think so too. Mustafa Akkad didn't like that. Uh, he didn't want Jamie to be killer. So it's like then why did you let them Seriously? film that ending for Halloween 4? Because that's like such a perfect setup. But anyway so yeah I guess that's this the throwaway retcon is. But then also just the relationship now is stepmom because in Halloween 4 is a foster mom. So now right. it feels like Jamie Rachel's referred to as Jamie's stepsister, and the mom is referred to as the stepmom, which implies that Rachel's dad is. It implies to me that Jamie's dad is somehow also Laurie's dad, or adopted dad, or something, and then remarried Rachel's mom. Wow, or something. I don't know. Wow. I'd...
1: Pace, you are right. you're going in you're going in directions that I typically see in daytime soap operas. <laughs> right, I, that's what this feels like. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. It's interesting that you are bringing up the foster dad. I'm going to use the word foster because this is what they were originally referred to in the previous movie. Yes. Uh, it's interesting that you're uh, bringing up the foster dad because. Uh, he is an irrelevant character. I, I, I'm not even. I'm not. I'm not throwing shade. He, his most major scene in Halloween Four was to uh, lecture Rachel into having more compassion uh, for Jamie, yes. and and that's really about it. Oh, and apparently he was up for promotion um, at his job as a cop. This is really no. it. This is all we know about that man. Why bother even having this character?
0: Right. It and then he's not even really referenced in this movie at all. We yeah. get the weird voiceover of somebody who's supposed to be her foster slash stepmom, and then we get Rachel, but no reference to the dad at all. So who knows? Oh, now we're up to the man in blacks introduction.
1: I I a a concept that again I think is intriguing, like the psychic stuff, but uh again as the outsider to this franchise is completely baffling <laughs> it's
0: definitely out of left field like it it's just so Dominique the director basically said that he Mustafa Akkad came to him late in the production of the film and was like we need a way for Michael to escape prison and so the director kind of wrote in this man in black character
1: ah. to
0: and so kind of started to insert him backwards into the film. And so he inserted this introductory scene where he steps on a dog's tail coming out of a bus. And we get a close-up <laughs> to see that he also has a thorn tattoo, just like Michael. So there's some connection about thorn. This movie clearly hasn't thought out what it is. Yeah. I think the director has said that he was born, like his birthday is aligned with the constellation thorn, So he decided to throw it in there just as a fun thing for that. No thought beyond that, and so it's left <laughs> up to Halloween Six to kind of figure out what the fuck is Thorn and what does it
1: have to do with Michael Myers and the Man in Black. Goodness gracious! Well, so uh, earlier you said that in in this movie the 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 do- the other dog has a better fate because we see him at the end alive, but of course we we still have to harm a dog. We see him at the end dead or dead. I think. Oh, oh, yes, yes, you're right. In the attic. So, oh yeah, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry, that was my mistake. So dogs really don't have a a good fate right. in this series. I mean, one dog is dead, the other gets his poor tail stepped on by a right. a character that has that has is like you said completely out of left field and is yet another example of what I was saying earlier about jerry-rigging this movie, taping mm-hmm. taping holes over with masking tape oh i mean you know the the man in black is really quite quite creepy but if at this point without any obvious connection to the rest of the story he's basically window dressing
0: yeah that's definitely what it feels like it just kind of is this deus ex machina ending and that's all it is and We also so this film just does not seem to have much regard for the previous entries, and that's or dogs. Yeah, or dogs. (laughs) Sadly, but like we see a new Michael Myers house, for instance. So this is supposedly the original house, but it is much larger and different (laughs) interior, Uh, and it works for the closing scene. Like that's why the director found this location was so it could they did the shooting in the house on location, and it works for it, but it also just breaks with continuity from the first two films. And then, again, we also have uh, the retconning of the relationship between Rachel and Jamie as now step-siblings as opposed to foster siblings. So it's it's just clear. And also, Michael is very clearly more supernatural here, the fact that he's able to just lay in a coma, I guess, until... Halloween and resurrect (laughs) in that guy's thing and then just be completely unstoppable like it's very much there, varies, there very much is <laughs> a clear disconnect between this movie and the first two.
1: In my oh, I, I, again, red flag if you laugh this much at a horror movie. And this time I'm laughing because I'm thinking of a theological parallel here. Clearly, Michael Myers and Jesus are on the same strict timetable, right? You know, Jesus ro- rises three days later. That was the plan for michael it's every halloween he just resurrects and then when halloween is over you know take a little nap (laughs) i know right he
0: he lays in hibernation except (laughs) on halloween
1: oh my goodness
0: and let's see uh oh so now we get introduced to some more unnecessary teenagers these people (laughs) Which are clearly just like fodder for Michael Myers later on yes. the film. We get the blonde guy Spitz and his girlfriend Sam. Girlfriend? And we get...
1: How does he. <laughs> you
0: know I yes. was going with this pace. <laughs> Explain to our
1: audience.
0: <laughs> it, first of all, there is no. Heterosexual explanation for Spitz's introduction, <laughs> walking like prancing out of the convenience store wearing his red flannel shirt.
1: Yes, and and I, just a reminder to the audience: we are queer, so we know him when we see him, so to speak, right? Yeah, I I'm
0: all for imagining more of us queer characters in films, yeah. and so I feel like Spitz is one that we can definitely imagine yes. too. At least be a bi man because it does ha- show him having sex with Sam later on. Right. But but there's some queerness to this man. We can't we can't say there's
1: no absolutely not. when when he when he what did he do? He danced out of the his workplace. And my first yes. thought was, Oh, he's so pretty. And then they established that he's in this heterosexual relationship. And I'm like, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or at least seeming from the outside heterosexual. We don't know. Yeah. But we also are introduced to Tina's boyfriend, Mm. who's also named Michael.
1: I, (laughs) I, I don't understand the planning.
0: I think the only reason he's named Michael is for the scene. So basically, Michael says he has to go to the auto shop. He takes his car there, and then he gets murdered by Michael Myers. And then later on, Michael Myers is now driving his car, picks up Tina. And so Tina keeps saying, Michael, why aren't you responding to me? Michael, why are you playing so cold or hard to get or whatever? And I think it's simply for that joke there that she thinks she's talking to her boyfriend, Michael, but she's actually talking to Michael Myers. So
1: what I'm hearing is that teenager useless character, Michael, is literally a plot device.
0: Yes, just for a joke, and just to be killed. And one of the deaths that still has a little bit of gruesomeness to it when it, he gets stabbed with the um, three pronged uh, whatever tool that is. Like it looked like a gardening tool. But I don't know why it was in
1: an auto mechanic shop. Why? Yeah, I I don't I <laughs> I don't know. Being a stereotypical gay who knows nothing about uh, vehicles, I <laughs> you've got me. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then. So, yeah, there's the confused identity gag between Michael and Michael. <laughs> and it's only the second time, interestingly enough. So Michael dons the mask for Tina's boyfriend, which was some sort of goblin mask. And this is the only time that Michael wears a mask other than his Captain Kirk mask. Yes. Yeah. Except in the first film when he wears the clown mask. So I think it's the only the second time in the entire franchise that he wears a nun captain kirk mask
1: interesting
0: and uh so she tina convinces michael who's doing some reckless driving to pull over by a convenience store so she can run in to have cigarettes yeah jamie has another weird psychic dream about tina getting killed so loomis convinces the cops to go after and find her and so this is just this very inappropriate scene that goes on too long yeah. where there's this boy who stutters yes. who's translating for Jamie who doesn't speak to Loomis and so Jamie is like half squeaking, half acting at like doing charades right. and this stuttering boy and it's like it's played almost like a joke so yeah. so insensitive to very. somebody like Jamie who can't speak insensitive to the stuttering right. kid but also, then Jamie is, we get Jamie's vision is of this big woman store, which we find out is instead this sign in front of the convenience store of this woman with these giant cookies over yes, her breasts. Yes. And it's called like the big cookies store or something like that.
1: Something like that.
0: But that's enough. My favorite part, though, is that's enough to make the cop who's there with Loomis recognize it. He's like, "Oh, I know that store just by the description of like the big woman store with cookies."
1: Well, you know, it's nice to know that the townspeople of Haddonfield know their town so well.
0: Their town, which is apparently is huge enough to have a <laughs> huge hospital, we see in the fir- in the second film, yes. and big enough to have a children's clinic.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I. I just want to go back and also express just my, I don't know, is it disappointment? Is it disheartening, of the the child, the little boy who's who stutters? I I also felt that this was just not not okay, but I'm also reflecting on how horror movies tend to have these types, right? Uh, where we're often talking about the final girl and the child, this child. Is clearly the special child who has the insight um to help decipher things.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Another one of those repeated tropes that we see, yeah. And i I don't know if we talked about it last film or not, but it definitely seems like the introduction of Jamie is a post Poltergeist sort of thing, where yes. every single. Every single horror movie has to insert a child protagonist.
1: Yes, thank you, Toby Hooper, and producer Steven Spielberg.
0: (laughs) Right. And so this this also brings me up of Danielle Harris, though, who plays Jamie, being such a great actress, even as a kid. Yes. Like, this scene, like, she does some really great acting, especially as a kid, throughout this entire movie, that I feel like, why does she not get, like, an oscar for this nobody sure. else in this movie like yeah. everybody else is phoning in their performance right except for poor Danielle Harris this little girl who is like acting her heart absolutely out, like, some sort of like oscar worthy
1: performance and just mm, it, it what, what's on this movie what is impressive about this little girl's acting to me is that from my understanding uh, a lot of acting uh uh, the performance, the quality of the performance uh, is is not dependent, but it's really influenced by the director. And so you could be a great actor and have a director who does not know what they're doing and your, your performance will reflect that. And yet Danielle Harris starred in these two movies with very different directors and was able to deliver just like a great performance, a she really brings to life this Jamie character, and it's it's just so amazing. It, it's 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 great. I
0: agree, and this is also where we get a little bit of um, audience what, insertion. I think into a line Tina says when uh, Tina, so Tina's rescued by the cops from the book Big Woman store and brought <laughs> to the child's clinic. Yes. And she's trying to leave so she can go meet up with her friends at this Halloween party at some sort of barn or something. And Loomis is like, you can't leave. You can't leave. And even poor Jamie is like crying. Tina! Tina! I know. don't!" Like the first time she speaks is to say Tina. And she's begging Tina not to leave. And Tina's like, too bad. I'm going out anyway. And she says to Loomis, as he like follows her out, she's like, you know, you're really creepy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes. honestly, we've all been thinking this yeah, about him, yes. especially in this movie.
1: Yes, yes, that is a very uh, insightful thing for for her to say on behalf of the audience. But rewinding a little bit before that, this impassioned plea of Jamie for Tina, again, it just makes me... Upset about what happened to Rachel, it's like, where did this deep affection for Tina come from? If they
0: had switched the two characters around, so it was Tina who dies early on, and then Rachel who makes it till towards the end. Yes, it would have been so much more convincing to hear Dan Yell Harris or Jamie saying, Rachel, Rachel, like crying and begging for Rachel not to leave and stuff. Yeah. Because at this point she doesn't even know that rachel's dead so like the why she's so upset that tina is leaving seems even out of place it would make more sense if she somehow knew that her sister her foster sister had died but she doesn't yet yeah Um, so uh it just uh, like you said it's a patchwork this movie's a patchwork (laughs) they don't quite all the pieces don't quite fit together
1: yeah absolutely it's just i think you just if if in fact they were making it up as they went along then we as the audience just kind of have to accept it as it goes along yep and now we get
0: to the uh halloween party with all the teens are at in some barn oddly enough the four teens we were introduced early well i guess three um so we have tina sam and spitz all kind of separate from the party early on uh, they play a prank in front of cops once again with trying, teenagers being stupid. Mm. Uh, and the cops, the buddy cops there even make a line there saying, you could have been shot, but thank goodness we're lousy cops or something. Okay. I, again,
1: a interesting concept there, but just just tonally out of place. Yeah. Tonally.
0: When, when the movie reads itself, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's not... It's not like quite the level of like the queer perfected art form of camp, where movies can be intentionally campy and kind of wink at the audience. This is just, this is these insertions of camp, I would say, perhaps, but in a movie that otherwise is trying to take itself seriously. So it doesn't make sense and it confuses the tone.
1: Oh, yes, Pace, that was beautifully and articulately and wonderfully and queerly put. Uh, yeah, I we can't even appreciate these bumbling cops because it just it just doesn't make any sense. And taking it back a couple of a couple of years before, or I don't know when this movie was made. The movie I'm about to yeah, reference was yet. made. Um okay. but you know, uh in that movie where uh Divine gives her famous speech, Filth is my politics. That, that oh, it's so outlandish. But it's not out of place. Do you know what I mean? It makes sense in the context that was established. But these these bumbling cops do not make sense in this context. And for me, I really wanted to like them. But it's like you are a square peg in a round hole. And yes, I know there are a number of queer jokes that can be made by that. Clear your mind out of the gutter because I'm not going there.
0: Yeah, and then, so this just, again, the cops are kind of being set up to get this grisly death because they're kind of being portrayed this way. And then we see them, I think we see them dead in the barn at the end. Mm-hmm, but yeah. We don't actually see them die. I think that's another one of those sequences that is cut out. Yeah. But, so so that also kind of does a disservice to the audience. So why I wonder if the they ever do a director's cut, this film, if it'd be better because the film is setting them up to be, brutally killed in some way by Michael, and then that doesn't happen, and so you're just kind of left like, then what was the point of having them? It There's just no narrative sense for it, and make adds to a convoluted feeling. I agree. And then, so like I said, the f- three teens kind of separate out to play this prank on the cops, but then Spitz and Sam go into a barn to have sex in some hay, and Spitz, remember, is the one we think is queer. So there's it really is this awkward teenage sex is awkward in general, I think, in real life and in film. Yes. But but like this is just like even more so. So kind of adds to that. Is he queer? Cause she's like, Do you have any protection? And he's like, Oh yeah, I have a condom. And he like pulls it out, but it's just like he looks like he has never used one of these <laughs> and is kind of terrified to do this. So I, I don't know. It and then he gets killed by a pitchfork through his stomach which is one of the brutal deaths that they kept in it Mm. but it's like the way of his death of getting kind of like penetrated right he's about to have sex is kind of another queer trope in film and cinema uh kind of winking at the audience about penetration male and male penetration so who knows but yeah so now they're dead the two
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's really no other way to put it. This movie, at (laughs) this point, is just putting you in such a mood. You literally just look at them and say, okay, now they're dead.
0: Yeah, and there's like this huge party here happening at the house or barn or whatever. So it's like, it could have been set up for this cool act where Michael goes into the barn and starts killing all the teens. But no, it's just these two are dead. Okay, so we have Tina now alone, in the field getting chased by Michael who shows up in a car and somehow Jamie and her friend the boy with a stutter have escaped the children's clinic and somehow caught up to everybody on foot which is another scene that was originally in the screenplay was that this boy was supposed to be like really good at riding bike and supposed to have like a tricked out bike that he was doing tricks on Mm -hmm. and stuff. But the little child actor couldn't figure out how to do the tricks fast enough. So they just cut that whole sequence and instead they have Jamie and this boy running somehow on foot, able to catch up to (laughs) Tina in the field. Uh, So yeah, Tina sacrifices herself by getting in between michael and jamie she gets stabbed by michael it's kind of a really self selfless scene a really kind of touching scene that again would have been even more touching had it been rachel yeah but instead we get tina so we're so so it just doesn't quite land but if it was like rachel we'd believe why she'd be um we'd Get that sentiment between her and Jamie, and why why she'd put herself in that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. At, at, at this point, I am just thinking about poor Rachel, and I, I, not to put too fine a point on it, but I sort of resent Tina.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't mean because I like the character; she's yeah. fun. She's probably just it, why Rachel's done so dirty that it just becomes this this i think unfair treatment of fortina but like again it's just it would make so much more sense it was rachel absolutely and then we get this is loomis again being very bizarre he gets he rescues jamie and then he shouts out to the woods where michael's ran off to basically go to the source of his rage which apparently is his house It's not really explained why that would be the source of his rage, but his childhood house is apparently where he gets his rage from. Mm. And so Loomis is basically setting an elaborate trap. He gets the cops to surround Michael's house. He has Jamie inside locked in a room uh, with another cop. And then he's kind of waiting around the house. Michael shows up. At the children's hospital. But this happens in deleted scenes. So we just get uh-huh. it now on voiceover over radio. That Michael showed up there. And so all the cops who are surrounding Michael's house. Leave the house. By the time the cops get there. Michael has already left. And apparently butchered his way through the children's hospital. So we get. So we just see bodies getting wheeled out. In the theatrical release of the film. Uh-huh. And then we get the big show off at the house. Where Michael. Kills the cop that's in the room with jamie chases jamie throughout the house and this what i think is actually a really good sequence like once yeah. it gets into the final act of this movie where it takes place in that house it's really suspenseful and scary uh jamie gets into a laundry chute, michael stabbing his way through a laundry shoot like it's really it's the fear is palpable Absolutely. jamie uh, like i believe jamie's fear and stuff like that because once again danielle harris is a great actress yeah uh Loomis comes out, tries to capture <laughs> Michael under a thing, then beats him to death, or beats him with a board, <laughs> and then collapses on top of him, uh, apparently from a heart attack. Uh, and so does Loomis die? I don't know. It's not clear. Damn. Also, at some point, Jamie runs into the attic where she finally sees Rachel's dead body. She sees a coffin that Michael has dug up to put her in. And she <laughs> lays into the she, coffin. Yeah,
1: it, it's, it's, it's it's an interesting moment because she just kind, kind of contemplates it. And it seems like she's intentionally going in there.
0: Yep. And then Michael catches up, takes off his mask. Or no, he's about to kill her. And then she says, uncle. And yeah. then he stops. And then she says, let me see. And then he takes off his mask. And due to some tricky camera, of course, we don't see his face. Yeah. But his... The little bit of his face we do see doesn't have any burn scars on it. So that's kind of, once again, a disconnect from the second film when he supposedly got severely burned throughout his whole body um, at the end of the second film, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, But we see him cry a tear, like a close-up of him crying a tear. Jamie goes to wipe it off, and then he, that somehow makes him decide he wants to start killing her again. (laughs) And then I think then that's when he chases her downstairs. He gets caught in the net and And Loomis with the board. This
1: is what I had read about. uh, It it was an intentional moment by the director who wanted to quote unquote humanize Michael. Uh, But, you know, coming from a, a uh, 2021 mental health perspective, uh, looking at this, watching this scene was this moment was meaningful for me because, you know, obviously the tear is a moment of vulnerability and Jamie is reaching out to comfort him. And that visually seems to trigger him back into uh, Michael Myers killing mode, but it, it, it could also read as the, you know, the fear of being vulnerable, uh, uh, of just you know just e- expressing even a little bit of emotion, a little bit of tenderness and then wanting to immediately cover that up because being vulnerable is just too much. It, it's too much for a lot of folks I mean we see it in our culture. Um, when in reality, you know all that anger, all that fury, rage, and energy. And, and if I'm analogizing here with Michael's um, killing and, and all the all the murdering that he does. That is really just as a result of that vulnerability, that teardrop that mm-hmm. they're all trying to ca- cover up.
0: That's a really fascinating perspective. And I think a lot of kind of the closest thing we get to... Uh, oh, kind of the body counts and stuff like that. And I don't mean this in a glib way at all, but Mm. in real life is with mass shootings, which happens so frequently in this country, unfortunately, but it's always, it's almost always a white, cis, straight man. And oftentimes a lot of the motivation are racially motivated or some sort of toxic masculinity going into that. And so what you say is a very, good and timely point i think about like yeah. the very real needs to show vulnerability and to model that for as kind of a way to counter to counter a lot of the toxic masculinity culture we have and the ways we, in which it's we it's a, inappropriate for men to show emotions right. other than anger and rage and that kind of thing
1: right so and um you know i would just i want to make it clear that i <laughs> I'm not defending these shooters and mass shooters or, or anything of the sort, but I, it is an observation to make that there is a lot of pain uh, to go around and the, the ease at which we have access to inappropriate ways of expressing that is just, it's just too easy in this country.
0: Yeah, gun control. Uh this is our very special episode on gun control and gun violence. <laughs> but like no for real, like a lot of there's a lot of debate in this country yeah. about whether it's primarily a mental health thing, whether or not it's primarily a gun control thing. Right. And uh I don't want to go down that debate right. other than to say what you're what you're saying, Joe, is that it's just the way the ease of access to some of the more harmful ways to both individual and community to express anger and violence and all these pent up emotions right versus the ways to access mental health services yeah. or other sort of services that can really help per- um deal with a lot of this anger or violence and all this stuff like that so so it's just very very clear where our priorities are as a country absolutely um speaking specifically the United States
1: uh, absolutely mm-hmm.
0: And then I think our last scene is the prison break. So I mentioned to Joe when we watch this together through text that something that really annoys me about this movie (laughs) is the fucking signs. There is this there's an establishing shot outside the police department where it says Haddonfield Police Department on over the doors. And then it's in the exact same shot. There's a sign right to the side that says Haddonfield Police Department. And then there's like a car or something that says very prominently in the shot that says Haddonfield Police Department. Yes. It's like, how unobservant do they think the audience is that they need to have it in three
1: spots in this one establishing spot that we're not the police department? And, 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 and your critique which is very valid, uh, just again reminds me of my life as a daytime soap opera watcher. And for those and for those of us list, of our listeners who also watch daytime soap operas, all negative two of you, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in that world, um, there are some very nice sets. Uh, if you can imagine for a daytime soap opera, they have a bad reputation for having cheap sets. But in reality, in 2021, they look great. But the signs are also a problem in there. You would hate them so much, Pace. (laughs) Uh, like In General Hospital, for example, there's a beautiful hotel where a lot of the action often takes place on a daily basis. The lobby is beautiful for a daytime soap opera but they have the name of the hotel in the most random places and <laughs> I, I i i suppose i understand that this is just to let the audience know where we are but i can't help thinking every time that's not where a sign for the hotel would be in real life right. and i i feel this way uh, about uh halloween and what you're pointing out i'm I'm just baffled that there's so much signage for what we all would know where we are.
0: Right. And then so we're at the prison, as we've now seen three times in a single shot. We're at the police station. And uh Michael is in a cell with his mask on because nobody bothered to take his mask <laughs> off, I guess. <laughs> and suddenly details, and Jamie details. is right. And Jamie's out in the parking lot. Uh and Michael comes in. Or no, Michael's in the prison. And then the black, man in black comes in. We still don't see his face. He just walks, strolls into the prison. We hear all these explosion sounds and gunshots. And then we close up on Jamie running into the prison to see that the door is open, smoke is clearing, and Michael's no longer there. And that's how the movie ends. That, that's
1: that. that ending is I thought it was I thought it was interesting I thought it was uh, I thought it was exciting Um, but it's also it just also reminds me of the ending for Halloween 4 in that where is this going and and it is it also seems slightly out of place but in, in an intriguing way I mean Halloween 5 the way it ends as you described it with this big you know, explosive shootout. Uh, it's It strangely become, steps out of its genre as a horror movie. And for, what, the two minutes that the scene is unfolding, it becomes kind of like an, a weird action movie. I was half expecting Bruce Willis to come out of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just, I don't know. And not having seen Halloween 6 since high school, I... I have no idea how that movie will address this. Yep. And we'll find out that
0: it seems like they didn't really know how they were addressing it either, <laughs> which is why I have two very different versions of the movie. No. But um it is but I still love six, so so we'll talk about it when we get there. Okay, so time to move
1: into our deep dive. Ah, the churchy part of the podcast, right?
0: Right. The nerd the nerds in church half. Yes okay so theology i only have one thing so i'm interested if you have other ideas for where we could go into a deep dive but mm-hmm. my deep dive is around redemption is michael capable of redemption mm. uh especially as the franchise as a whole set him up to be kind of this personification of evil right this pure evil and so is such a Thing able to be redeemed, and this film seems to suggest maybe Loomis tries to reason with him for the first time in the entire franchise, claiming that there's a way to end the rage. And then we see him shed a tear. So, for me, that seems to be suggesting that there's something there going on there with the redemption. Mm. Uh, if, if Michael is some sort of Satan sort of character, can the devil be redeemed? I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: on this movie or on any of that? So I think it was, I think it was around maybe as early as Halloween two, that I started to become, started to warm up to the idea of Michael possibly having no backstory, possibly having no motivation other than as you had articulated a stand in for evil. And, um, Going going by that perspective, my first question that comes to mind is, if he is a representation of evil, what's the representation of of good? Obviously, an immediate answer would be Laurie Strode, right? But Laurie is not even in the Thorn trilogy, so one might one might think, oh, maybe Doctor Loomis. But in this movie, he came across as really anything but laudable, and so mm-hmm. I guess the default answer would would be Jamie, by by really by by way of the fact that she's just a kid, and her life is being ruined. So, I guess she would be you know the protagonist to Michael's antagonist, which is interesting and. In, when you think about it, but also in a, if I think about it more theologically, um, my brain takes me to the Book of Job, and the what I found always to be an interesting relationship between God and the devil in in the opening passages, and basically uh, how they they tend they they team up to sort of taunt Job in this really uh, cruel test of Job's loyalty to God and the devil being the devil is only too happy to uh, mess around uh, with Job's life. Uh, But God is also approving of this too. God is basically like, yeah, have at it. And um, in, in these, in these early scriptures, the old Testament, uh, or, or, or the First Testament, however you refer to this part of uh, the Bible. Uh, and in and, and, and these texts, uh, the devil is pretty much characterized, uh, in my reading anyway, not necessarily as evil, but just like the opposite of good. The original, yeah. one of the original translations for uh, the name Satan was antagonist, right? So yeah this is so theologically speaking this is just a another way of doing something right that might not be the correct way of doing it or it might show you that the right way is supposed to be right way the right way I'm trying to say that there's nothing inherently yeah. evil about a mistake or you know or bad choices which I think Satan as characterized in Job and other early part, early scriptures is. So if we put that in the context of Michael, it's still problematic to me because whereas uh scripture, uh, the Bible as a whole, old and new testaments are layered and nuanced enough that you can even debate the nature of evil of the nature of Satan. But with Michael, He is a killing machine. And it's really difficult for me to really make a decision, an interpretation about, is he evil? Is he, or is he just a a truck? And, you know, a truck drives. And if it's a big truck, it'll kill a lot of people. And is is Michael just a big truck?
0: (laughs) That's a really great point. I, which I hadn't really thought about, is that we taught Loomis. Of course, is of the assumption that Michael is the personification of evil in most of the films, and he says that many times. Yeah. But what if Michael is really just the personification of death instead, and sort of like a grim reaper mm. character? Be, there's a book I'm thinking about. Uh, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She has oh. this long portion, and it's one. Annie Dillard is one of those thinkers who is kind of... She's not a theologian. She's a nonfiction writer, essayist, but yet her work is oftentimes more theological than many of the theological treatises you'll read. Mm -hmm. And she has, in this book and also Holy the Firm, she takes on the notion of theodicy or why does evil exist Mm -hmm. in the world. And she comes up with this idea of the profundity of nature... Oh. and how that also kind of leads to death yes. and so there so death kind of needs to exist in the universe yes. so there's kind of this almost nullifying the this concept that death is somehow inherently evil but we as humans associate it with evil and so we think that god must be evil because or the universe must be evil or something because there's death in it but death is just A function of the universe that is neither good nor bad in and of itself and so in that sense Michael Myers kind of being this personification if we were to see him that way this Grim Reaper the Grim Reaper is not evil Uh, the death can definitely be an antagonist and it can be evil from the perspective of the characters but kind of on a cosmic scale is death evil it's not it's a lot more ambiguous
1: yeah yeah uh, this is this is making me wonder is Michael a force of nature then in in process theology uh, some rather significant ink has been spilled on on the nature of nature. is nature evil because it's capable of so much catastrophe you know tsunamis, hurricanes are those evil or are they just events that, uh, produce really unfortunate circumstances, and you know some. Significant... For our audience,
0: do you want to explain what process theology is, quick. Uh,
1: process theology, in my understanding, and remember pace. If if I'm wrong, you can you can correct me because you're the one who's about to become a doctor of theology here. Uh, <laughs> the way I understand process theology is that uh, God grows and changes with how humanity grows and changes. That's the process Mm -hmm. that's being referred to in process theology.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of inspired by the philosopher slash theologian, Alfred North Whitehead. He wrote this book on process. And so just like Joe said, it's this idea that basically God is in a state of becoming along with all of the universe, along with humanity and all those things. So we're all on this path of unfolding as as opposed to this notion of god being this unchanging unmovable yes
1: person. yes absolutely if anyone out there happened to watch the netflix movie about uh, pope francis and pope benedict meeting which didn't really happen in real life the whole movie is pretty dramatized this is the one where anthony hopkins plays pope francis and he, he it was one he did it wonderfully uh, the movie characterizes Pope Francis actually as a process theologian who believes in this living God who is learning and growing along with humanity, learning and growing. What is the name of that movie so we can tell our audience to look it up? That um, that is a I good. Haven't seen it either. Yeah, um, I will. I will look that up in in a moment. What What did you have to think about uh, about this process of is nature evil or not?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I feel like first, if we put Michael as death, going back to my original question, can death be redeemed? St. Francis in his Canticle of the Sun refers to death as a sister, sister death, and kind of as this ultimate relation, like almost kind of nurturing and, of course, thinking in sort of a gender complementarianism, so not at all how we think, but the ways (laughs) we... Typically associate feminine traits with being more n- nurturing and stuff like that uh. the fact that death is seen as a feminine thing for uh, Francis of Assisi implies that there's this notion of this familiarity this nurturing aspect of death this loving caregiving aspect of death and so I feel like that is something that is redeemable death is a process just a A natural process like you're saying and so death as a process of the universe would be redeemed in some sort of new creation whatever that would look like uh yes Mm -hmm. yeah and whether or not death exists in the eschaton in the end times i don't know uh it definitely would be different i think that's kind of what we get from the New Testament scriptures, uh, a lot of the apocalyptic stuff of Paul and Jesus and stuff is this concept that whatever's coming next is going to be different in a way that we can't fully comprehend. But if death is just a process that's neither good nor bad of the universe, does that mean that it is being cast into the fiery pit or is there a chance for it to be redeemed mm. and i would say that's yes I, I think so I, if we see michael in that kind of personification of death yeah. then yeah sure i think he can be redeemed
1: so uh so the movie on netflix that i was uh, mentioning is called the two popes and uh it stars as i said anthony hopkins as pope francis and jonathan price as pope benedict and I love these two actors, and for me, I think it's interesting that Jonathan Price was pay- playing Pope Benedict because my favorite movie of his was Evita, where, where, where he played the dictator. <laughs> um, yeah. But yes, uh, the two popes available on Netflix in two, um, uh, on Netflix. So it was released in two thousand nineteen. I remember
0: it being a bit of a buzzy film with like some talk about Oscars and stuff. I don't know it what was. came of that, yeah. That. But um, I just I remember hearing about it. It's just not one I had the chance to see yet.
1: So sure, cool. now, yeah. Now I definitely need to see it. <laughs> I I like how I like how you're you're talking about process and how things are natural, uh, and how Michael could very well be the the personification of death. I'm also stuck on something you had said a couple of moments ago uh, about Michael as a grim reaper. And I was (laughs) thinking more about that because in some of the previous movies, there are some, there are some uh, minor characters that you think are going to die, but Michael just passes over them. And I'm thinking specifically about a baby where he yeah. it really I was really terrified he was gonna do something to that baby and he didn't. And I believe there was also an old woman that he just passed by. And so this yeah, yeah this notion in beginning of powering too. Yeah. So this notion of him as a grim reaper is intriguing to me. Um because if um if if he appears and I guess if he if he stabs you to death, that You know, that just meant it was your time. I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but.
0: (laughs) No, it kind of makes me think of the uh, franchise uh, Final Destination, where it really does kind of. It's not a personification of death. As we see, and like if we imagine Michael Myers or the Grim Reaper or anything else to be death, yeah, but their death is clearly the antagonist in that film, yeah, and it's kind of this notion of like if you escape death once, death will keep coming to basically balance the scales. And so, we so that kind of if we look at the Halloween franchise from that kind of point of view, it would make sense why he was so determined to go after Jamie Lee Curtis's character of Laurie Strode because she escaped death and it was her time yet. She still escaped death. So now he's kind of trying to make, uh, make up for that. And then he'd go after Jamie, Jamie, the character Jamie by Danielle Harris, because mm. she was not supposed to exist. If her mom, uh, lived too long and wasn't supposed, it wasn't supposed to ever get married or didn't have kids. Then She's not. This girl is kind of an aberration to the timeline, too, in that sense. So yeah. it kind of shifts my perspective. So, so that's really interesting. If we kind of use Final Destination logic around <laughs> death and, and what that means for the Halloween franchise,
1: right? And so, for me, I don't really know how to answer the question: uh, Can Michael be redeemed? Uh, just because there's another pressing question. That uh, I don't think there's an answer for either, and I was asking you this when we first started watching these movies. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, just you know imagining what if Michael finally got Laurie, just you know stabbed her and and she's dead, boom. What what would happen to him? And and I remember you were joking that oh well, he'd retire to the Bahamas <laughs> or something. <laughs> Uh, He'd get put up in shady pines, or shady shady pines. Yes, you know, um, Golden Girls reference. Um, but in a more serious sense, there'd just be no more movie, <laughs> right? There'd be no more. Yeah. There'd be no more franchise. But it's really an interesting philosophical elephant in the room to uh, slash thought experiment to play around with. Like if if getting to Laurie is his ultimate goal? What will he do when he finishes that goal? So, clearly, with the existence of Jamie and Laurie already being dead, uh, you know, Michael no longer has Laurie to fixate on, but now that he's fixated on getting to Jamie, what exactly has his goal shifted to? Is he trying to eliminate the Strode line?
0: Yeah. That's a very good question, and it just doesn't... it's kind of the Star Wars logic of everybody in that galaxy is related, even though it's a giant galaxy. <laughs> so like everybody in the Halloween franchise is related somehow. And so yeah. Michael's trying to end his family line, I guess.
1: Yeah. <sighs> I I think part of the fun of watching of uh, watching the movies is, well, I, I hate to say it, but the first thing that shallowly comes to mind is – Watching everyone evade Michael—that's half the fun of the movie. Let's be of the franchise. Let's be real, right? But also, for me anyway, the mystery of Michael Myers never gets boring. Like I would i if this franchise goes on forever, <laughs> I'd probably keep watching it because. I am just so drawn, maybe this is what makes me Catholic Pace. I am so drawn to the mystery of Michael Myers that I will just keep following along for the ride. In, in Roman Catholicism, we like to use the word mystery a lot. The mystery of faith. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. It, Michael Myers is a concept that I don't see myself getting... Tired or bored of anytime soon. Granted, there are some movies of questionable quality, but that doesn't take away my interest in Michael Myers. I love that.
0: Um, <laughs> 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 that's really fun.
1: So being Catholic has um, a, a good use after all, eh?
0: <laughs> oh, for sure. I'm a Halloween I love, fan.
1: <laughs> I love my Catholic uh,
0: family as well, I, and. I I think that oftentimes unfortunately Catholicism gets a bad rap in yeah. match of Christianity, even though Catholics are the ones who invented liberation theology for Yes, <laughs> yes. Which is one of the most uh novel and continuing to bring forth a lot of amazing theology uh Absolutely day, so, Yeah. Uh, I uh I,
1: I also just I just want to add that, uh, you know, obviously Roman Catholicism has uh, earned its fair share of uh, criticisms and much deserved hatred, right? And so a question that all often comes up for um, loyal, loyally active Catholics such as myself is, especially when I'm I'm gay, (laughs) is why do you stay in the church? And actually, uh, I find myself often reflecting on that question. And I, I usually don't have an answer uh, prepared to to give when I am presented with that question. And I think that question runs parallel to, why do you keep watching Michael Myers? Like, And it's like, I don't know. It's a divine mystery. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's a very good, I, I love. Your answer to that, that's a very Luther, I'm a Luther scholar. <laughs> uh, so that's a very Luther thing to just kind of chalk everything up to mystery. Yes, and kind of... Okay, I think that m- brings us to rating the movie. Mm-hmm. We're still doing jack-o'-lanterns. These are ones that have been dramatically slashed up and carved <laughs> out in the opening credits of the film. So out of 10, <clears throat> 10 of these slashed up jack-o'-lanterns, what would you rate this film?
1: Three jack o' lanterns. I'm, I'm just going to be real. Three.
0: <laughs> yeah. I for me I would say probably about I'd give I'm a little bit more generous I would say four. Oh. Okay. I think if we got to see the original unrated footage that was originally gonna be rated X, mm-hmm. maybe I'd could even bump up to six. Maybe it'd make a little bit more narrative sense. Oh. But as it stands it's just kind of a mess so
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh what was your favorite kill pace?
0: I think our poor queer friend uh, Spitz <laughs> uh, his name Spitz uh Spitz yeah our poor queer friend Spitz in the like that was just uh it's a very almost Friday the 13th kind of kill um Jason Voorhees often kills people in the act of intercourse. Yes, and this is the first time Michael has done that. I think so. So it's kind of barring from that movie. But but I, I just like it. It's kind of it's kind of a queer death, and it's it's fun. It's fun <laughs> slasher
1: What about you? Good 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 pick there though. My favorite kill was useless teenager Michael <laughs> being killed with the <laughs> mysterious. Uh, m- m- auto-mechanic tool. tool. (laughs) Yeah, something. And uh, I I like it because it was (laughs) I don't don't know if this sounds weird to say. I'll I'll just say it. It was a creative kill. (laughs) (laughs) Because first Michael Myers taunts teenager Michael by scratching the thing on teenage Michael's car. And that rattles teenage Michael because we know how much he loves that thing. And then things just fall down from there and not to sound like i'm sadistic or maybe that i have a dark side that i should be exploring but (laughs) that that thing that michael uses as a weapon is it's such an interesting (laughs) weapon i don't we should we should just stop it right there yeah so that's my favorite kill (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah the the if we keep
0: if this podcast is successful we keep doing uh, more franchises. I know Joe and I both want to get to Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. so maybe that'll be season two. I don't know. We'll see. But there becomes this trope in Nightmare on Elm Street, the later films, where they introduce the random teenagers, where they each get introdu- introduced with like one character trait that defines their entire appearance on the film, mm. and also defines how they're going to die and like how what what character trait that Freddie will use to make their dream world. So like, there's a girl whose entire character trait is she's scared of bugs. So then in her dream, she gets turned into a bug. (laughs) And so that's kind of what I think about this movie though. It's like this teenager. Michael's entire character trait is he is kind of a jerk who likes his hot rod car. And so of course he's going to
1: get murdered in a way that involves this hot rod car. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am looking forward to seeing this played out in the Nightmare series. Yeah. So one day um, we will have to
0: do an episode where we kind of talk about the way the big three slashers all kind of play off each other. Because I definitely think that this film is kind of influenced by uh, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street a lot. For sure. Even though Halloween, oddly enough, started off all of them. Mm. Okay. Uh, now I'm starting
1: to ramble. So I guess on that note, <laughs> what's our next movie? <laughs> well, we are watching Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers. This came out in 1995. Uh, the director was Joe Joe jo Chappelle. Joe Chappelle. Yep. Joe Chappelle. Written by Daniel Farren's. And uh, from what you've told me, Pace, you like this one.
0: Yes, I like the. I like both this movie and the producer's cut together uh, um, by themselves, each one kind of sucks, but they kind of redeem <laughs> each other. So, so it'll be interesting to talk about both of these movies over the next two weeks. In any case, we
1: will do Halloween 6, the next episode. Any yep. any concluding thoughts, Pace? I don't think so. I think we're ready for our outro. Okay. <laughs> That's it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who also edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church, and on Twitter at H-N-A-C-P-O-D. For all the latest updates and upcoming films, news and other announcements until next time when you are remodeling your home please please refrain from putting up signs that say this is the kitchen this is the living room this is the bathroom we know what a kitchen, living room and a bathroom looks like just as we should know what a police station looks like
0: This is not General Hospital, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we get one sign per location. We don't need 50.
1: Indeed, indeed.